A brand new sound for your Sunday morning. The only one who could ever teach me. Introducing the Reverend A.R. Bernard of the Christian Cultural Center. Was the son of a preacher man. And Rabbi Joseph Fantasnik of Religion on the Line. The only one who could ever teach me. Now on 77 WABC. The Rev and the Rabbi. Where faith matters. Good morning, I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I am Reverend A.R. Bernard. And this is one of the few things in New York that is being taxed as of now. <laughs> as of now. You can, as of now, right, that's you correct. Can, you can listen today without getting any tax imposed on you. All right. Uh, Reverend, I, I had an experience this past week, and I don't know if you felt the same way, but, you know, you had the confluence um, of Easter and Passover, uh, and it was a, a very spiritual moment. We each could be proud of our respective traditions and not have to compromise our identities. And I looked at the newspapers. It was last week. And I looked at the headlines and the stories, that be, you know, as you turned the page. And I said, couldn't we at least devote one day to talking about some of the uplifting accounts of life? Couldn't we have one moment where we say, today... We're going to think a little higher. We're not going to get into all of, you know, the, the salacious, sordid details of people's personal lives. We want to focus on our potential as a people. And yet I was disappointed, maybe expecting too much. Unfortunately, you're going to dis- be disappointed again and again. We live in an inverted society where, where, where bad news is good news and good news is bad news. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we, we have this fascination with evil. Uh, you know, wait, well, wait a minute. Isn't there a story in the Bible about that? The tree of the yeah. knowledge of good and evil. We were just curious and we wanted to know about evil. We weren't satisfied with the good. So maybe it, it appeals to some desire, some propensity inside of us. I don't know. You know. I was telling some people, when you look at that story of creation, after each day it says, and God saw that it was good. It doesn't say God saw it was great. It doesn't say that God saw it was terrible, right? <laughs> it wasn't great. It, was, it wasn't so great. wasn't so bad. wasn't so good. It was just good. Just good. And maybe it says to us, you know what? I made it good. You can make it better. You're the partner in the story of creation. And I always think, how can we be better? And uh, I think we have to aspire to be better. Isn't that what happens when you walk into a house of worship? You, you walk in, you listen, you know, to the spiritual history of your people. You listen to the stories uh, and you say, you know, I, I can be a little bit better. I can improve. I, I think, you know, it's uh, we're we're a hospital for sinners in many ways, but we, we try to get people to walk out in a healthier frame of mind. What you just said there is so important in terms of a message to the millennials, because too often houses of worship have, have been a place of condemnation and judgment, you know, instead of what you just said. And that is I come in here to be better, to get better, to think better, to feel better, to understand life better, and to live it better. So, uh, yeah, I'm with you on that one, 100%, man. And it's not just a feel-good, you know, shallow uh, religious belief. No, it makes demands on our lives. It holds us responsible, accountable for our choices and our actions. But like you said in that definition of holiness, what does it mean to stand higher? I, yeah, yeah, we do that. We we uh, elevate ourselves, you know, in the sanctuary when the word holy is used we stand uh, on, on the soles of our feet so we stand a little taller and that's what holiness is all about um, I was thinking the, the, the cardinal 
in his one of his books talks about the meaning of tradition. Uh, it comes from the Latin traditio to hand over, and mm-hmm. you know we try to hand over this rich tradition uh, yeah. that wasn't relegated, you know, to the past. It's tradition is ongoing, and we can learn so much from looking back, but also looking forward with that, you know, foundation uh, that has been given to us. Yeah, yeah, now that is so true. And someone asked me, well, well, isn't the nation divided, uh, more divided than we've ever been? Uh, and, you know, I had to stop and think about the last several decades in terms of politics mm-hmm. and issues of race. And I'm going to make a statement here. I think that Washington, D.C. is more racially and politically divided than the country. I think we, the people, continue to be racially exploited by political ambitions of political parties. But we, we as, as Americans, are not as divided. I, I, I don't think that. I mean, yeah. I travel around the country in the South, the Bible Belt, the Northeast. And, you know, the, the general conversation is, is one I, of, I, of we get along. I think too many politicians think of the me instead of the we. You know, what can I do for to better my career, to get reelected? Uh, they look through a very parochial lens, very partisan lens. Uh, and uh, we, again, we're better than that. We should be better than that. So uh, I agree with you. By the way, we have yeah. two people coming on the air today, and I'm looking at the book. It's called Missing Pieces. And I recommend this book because it's a story that we're going to hear about. I think they will captivate people's attentions. Uh, and you can get the book from Jerissa. G-E-R-I-S-A books.org. That's the website, Jerissa Books. The name of the book is Missing Pieces. And wait till you hear, wait till you hear what Missing Pieces refers to. Uh, hmm. I think this would be an important lesson for people in looking at things that belong to the family and what you need to do with those things. And you're talking about Dr. Dr. David Isaac and Dr. Beth uh, Gerson. Gerson, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Excellent. They are two very special people. They've come through to my life through uh, Rabbi Diana Gerson, who works at the New York Board of Rabbis. And uh, I just can't wait to have that discussion with them because I'm intrigued by uh, what they were able to write. And again, in a week where we saw Holocaust remembrance, uh, it's not enough just to remember. Uh, can't just look back. We have to say, and what does that tell us about living today? So stay tuned. Beautiful, beautifully put, Rabbi. We'll be back right here on 77 WABC. Where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Tassel. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend, when you and I spoke about the program for this week, I mentioned to you that it was Holocaust Remembrance Week, and you said immediately we have to do something uh, in that vein. So it's a great honor uh, to have two people on who are so committed uh, to telling the story, but not just telling the story, but also talking about what it means for us today. Uh, this is a week of remembrance. It's a week of renewal. It's a week of sacrifice. It's a week of survival. And I'm honored to have on the air Dr. David Isaac and Dr. Beth Gerson, both with the same first name, Doctor. And I'm looking at a book here. It's entitled Missing Pieces. And Dr. Isaac, you had much to do with this. And 
Dr. Gerson, you also participate. What does it mean? What What's the reason for this title, Missing Pieces? Well, I grew up in London, wartime London, and uh, there were several relatives that uh, were referred to by name, but I never met them. Uh, I had no grandfathers, either from my mother's side or from my father's side. And I never really knew, I never gave that too much thought. Uh, when I did get a little bit older uh, and I would refer to them by name, they would just shrug or they would say, well, they're gone or they were missing. And I really didn't know what they were talking about. In 1997, uh, we were in New York and uh, my parents were visiting with us. We went to the recently opened Museum of Jewish Heritage and we walked through that exhibit and all of a sudden my mother in particular stopped in front of an exhibit called Kristalna and she, she just stood there frozen for a minute and she said, I remember that night and at the time I didn't even know what she was talking about but her expression was so strange and I was looking at Beth and uh, we said, we've got to bring out this story here and so Beth put together a whole kit for them to write their memoir about their experiences and so on. And that actually resulted in a small book, which they called, uh, intriguingly, Our Story, Martha and Pincus Isaac. Those were my parents. And while that story helped fill in the details related to their escape from Germany, it referred to the people that I was talking about earlier uh, their siblings or their parents as gone. In 2010, when I thought, right after my father passed away, we discovered an envelope behind the sofa. It was a large manila envelope tattered. We opened it up and we found almost uh, about 100 letters, postcards, scraps of paper in different languages, uh, German, in Yiddish, in Hebrew, and at the time I really didn't even know what that was. And I started to look at them and translate them, and each time I translated one of these letters, uh, I, I sat up straight and I, I would call Beth over and say, you got to come look at this, and this is what happened to Sigmund, this is what happened to Joseph, uh, this is what happened to Uncle Leo. And all of a sudden, we felt we needed to put this kind of stuff together because those letters provided us with the information that had been missing all along from our family story. And it was in their own language, in their own time. One didn't know about the other. And those letters had actually been collected by an aunt who was living in Portugal, which was neutral at the time, and she somehow saved all of these uh, they wound up behind my parents' sofa, and that's how the book became to be written. Wow, what a story. Reverend, uh, I was telling Dr. Gerson that we live in a time when people throw things away. Uh, I remember a friend of mine, he preserved his library over the years because he wanted his kids to uh, to keep the books in their respective homes, and shortly after he died, they gave away the books. Uh we don't hold on to things sometimes and things we should be holding on to. Uh, Dr. Gerson, your reaction to that? It is incredibly important. 
Um, in it, we see the results of that in the contents of that envelope. The memories in that envelope, the stories that the letters tell, uh, are irreplaceable. The stories, however sad they are, our children need to know. Mm -hmm. They need to be passed from one generation to the next. They are, uh, they're what I call part of that metaphorical backpack that um, some folks would uh, refer to it as, oh, that's just baggage, but no, it isn't. It is the, the vital stories. It is part of their legacy. It's part of their history. Um, children, children need to know where they've come from to know where they're going. It's just it's part of their legacy. Mm. And uh, it's vitally important. Um, in, in our case, we knew it wasn't just for the, for the children that we did this. It was for the entire family. We felt um, that uh, there was some pressure. There was really no time pressure from anybody else. But we felt we needed to get this done because we knew the stories now. But everyone needed to know. Um, thankfully, there were, were many um, offspring of survivors, and um, we were then able to send out books to all of them and share those stories. And the uh, responses from them have really justified every minute of time we put into them. Um, you know, letting us know that yes, this is really hard to hear, but. We all need to hear it. We all need to know it. We all need to pull the lessons from it. And the other piece of that, of course, is we always hear about uh, people having perished. But our feeling was it wasn't just perishing. There is a story. Everybody, everybody who died, everybody who was murdered during the Holocaust uh, had a story. It was not just six million. It was much more than a number. It was six million stories. It was all of those families. It was all of those communities. And every story is important. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr. Dr. Gerson and Dr. Isaac, I, I think about the importance of artifact when it comes to history, because you know, there are movements that would like to say that the Holocaust didn't happen. There are Holocaust deniers. And how can you do that in the face of so much evidence, so much artifact, and people who are alive to this day, very few, it's, you know, getting less and less, but who were eyewitnesses to this? How do you speak to this whole idea of denying something that has so much evidence to it? Um, the most crystal clear answer... I have, and I believe that David would agree with me. When we bring, when children come to the museum, when adults come to the museum, we say to them, today you become a witness. The artifacts tell stories, and that is their importance. Yes, the stories are incredibly interesting, but beyond the interest, they all tell stories. Um, there is an there's a red shoe now on exhibition in the museum. And that red shoe, it's, it's a high heel, and it's just a red shoe that's very well worn, and it's, it belonged to somebody. It sits in a vitrine by itself. And it's wonderful to gather the kids around, and whether they're 
fifth grade, that's nice, but when they're in high school, even more so. And I'll say, what do you see? And they'll say, a red shoe. A red shoe, it's a high heel. It's red, it's worn. And then I ask, who do you think wore that shoe? It's just a shoe. But behind it, there are there's a big picture, a really large picture, with thousands of shoes that were taken from real live people before they were murdered. Hmm. And there's a story. There is yeah. a story that goes with each one. Each shoe belonged to somebody, and that's why artifacts are important. Yeah, Dr. No, I, I, I could see that. I, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Rabbi, but I, I, I'm picturing a red high heel shoe in my mind. Yeah. I haven't been. Yeah. I haven't seen that particular exhibit, but I can quickly picture that. And that leaves a, an indelible mark and a trigger that takes a person back to the story behind that shoe. I think it's, it's, it's brilliant. You're going to say, Rabbi. Yeah, you know, uh, Dr. Isaac, you said something for the touch me because I relate to it very much. Growing up was not the same for us as it was for other kids. I recall my bar mitzvah and... Uh, we had a party, and uh, there was a band, and the band leader came over to my father just before uh, it started. He said, look, we're going to light candles tonight, 13 candles. And give me the names of 13 relatives who can light those candles, or 12. Your son will be the 13th. And my father looked at him and said, we don't have 13 relatives. They were taken from us. And I, I'm just thinking of the impact this had on you, finding postcards and learning about people who... We're not at the table. Oh, you you have have no idea. I mean, uh, to find out, I used to say, whatever happened to my Uncle Sigmund, who was uh, deported when he was all of, I think, 17 or 18 and wound up all over the place. And the answer would come, every family member had had something different. Uh, Oh, we think he wound up in Russia, and that's why we never heard from him again. Well, we discovered that Uncle Sigmund was... uh, put together with a whole bunch of other people in a synagogue, taken out to a forest in Lithuania and shot into a pit. And we have evidence of that. And we have the last letter that he wrote, and which is in that book. And you can repeat this almost about all of the people that were missing in our lives. And wow. uh, I very much relate with you to the fact that uh, as a kid, other kids had grandfathers. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, I never thought of anything. I don't have a grandfather. Or, yeah, so uh, to, to, to both of you, uh, Dr. Isaac and Dr. Gerson, um, the, the book emphasizes the importance of family, values, and tradition. Uh, unpack that for us. What role did each of these play? Many, and I won't say most, but too many survivors for years, they just would be very silent about what went on. And they just couldn't bring themselves even to talk about it. And why were they also silent? The answer is probably very complicated. Some found it too upsetting, too painful. Some thought that maybe if we don't talk about it, uh, it'll never happen again. Uh, Some didn't want to burden their children with any of this and... Some felt that they wanted to assimilate into uh, here in America, into the American lifestyle, and didn't want to be weighed down by by this past history. And some maybe even felt a little guilty about the fact, or a lot guilty, about 
how come we survived and my brother and my aunt and my uncle and my mother didn't. And uh, actually, it wasn't until about 1961, I think, that television brought the Eichmann trials uh, after Eichmann was captured and it was all over the country here and everybody was watching this, that people had much more of an awareness. And I think at that point, it also opened up survivors to talk about, uh, you know, their experiences. And and if I may, um, you asked about tradition as well. And mm-hmm. the tradition... The tradition and the history very much, I think, go hand in hand. Um, we have, we're so very fortunate to have artifacts that family members who left, they were a step ahead of Hitler, and they were able to get out of Germany while it was still possible to get out, and they were able to bring certain things out with them, sometimes in pieces, um, sometimes not. Um, those artifacts represent tradition. And we talk very, very often about where will the next home of those artifacts be. Um, they're, They're so important. They're not just important to family. They're important to entire communities. Uh, two of the artifacts, actually more, but two specific artifacts, have already uh, made their way to the museum because we feel that they are just so very important and they're part of that larger story. So uh, the artifacts, the history, the tradition, the artifacts, they all tie together. The artifacts tell the story. We, we, in the museum, we say that the artifacts actually speak. We need, and we help that process. You know, we, we are the facilitators for that process, but they speak. They tell stories. You know, I remember uh, shortly after 9-11, people would uh, take a name of someone who died mm-hmm. and have a bracelet with the name on it. Uh, and do some background, you know, research, finding out who is this person, who is the family. Uh, and when we use the, the expression, six million died, I mean, it's incomprehensible, mm-hmm. uh, right, to speak of six million. But when you talk of one person, uh, think of the focus, for example, on Anne Frank. Uh, but each person, as you mentioned, has a history, has a story connected to families. Uh, and I, I think sometimes we lose sight when we just use numbers rather than names. Or you talked about the shoe. It, it, it's impactful when we personalize it that way. These were human beings who deserve to live. Uh, and we have a responsibility. Correct. I'll add one more artifact to the shoe from a very different part of the exhibition. Um, th- this one is... Um it was in a, a small gallery called Children. Um, there is a half-completed loom, or excuse me, potholder on a child's loom, and right next to it there's a little picture of a beautiful little blonde girl. She was about three years old. Her name was Yoheved. And I would go through that part of the exhibition with children. Of course, we haven't been able to do that for quite a long time because of COVID. But I would reach that point, and I would look at the children around me, and some of them as young as fifth grade, and say, 
I understand. I'm a grown-up, and I know that six million is a huge number, and a million and a half of them children. I, and I'll say, I have a hard time with that number. But when I look at this picture, and I point to Yoheved, and I look at the loom, and I think about, she didn't get to finish that loom. She was taken away. She was in the... She was in the ghetto with her parents, the Vilna ghetto, and she was taken away with a group of children, and her parents never saw her again. Um, And I'll say to the kids around me that tomorrow or 10 years from now or 20 years from now, when you think about today and when you think about the Holocaust, think about the children, think about Yoheved, because it's her story. and, and again, it is, it's tradition. Some of the d- tradition is connected strongly to religion. Some of it is connected to the, you know, to the children's story being children. Renee Arbenard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, The Rev and the Rabbi, where faith matters. 77 WABC and WABCRadio.com. Dr. Gerson, uh, and, uh, you know, you, you're intellectually accomplished, and I'm not saying, Dr. Isaac, you're not, <laughs> but I'm just directing the question to Dr. Gerson. I, speak to us about scapegoating, because uh, some of that is still taking place today in our society. Uh, and, and that was a, a, you know, a key issue uh, with what was going on in, in Germany at the time with the Jewish people. Speak to us about that. Uh, absolutely. Um, particularly at this time when we've just um, gone through a week of observing um, Holocaust remembrance. Uh, Elie Wiesel's words resonate. His message is timeless. Elie Wiesel said the opposite of hate is indifference. We must not be silent. When we see wrong, we must step up. Stereotyping and scapegoating are always wrong. You don't blame a group. You don't, you don't put blame on others because they may not be just like you. They may not have the same beliefs you have. They may not, their faith may be different. They may, they may dress differently. They, they may not be the same, but to blame, to put blame on them, that, that is what happened in Germany very strongly. Hmm. That's Hitler and the Nazis built on that. The the program of propaganda was incredible. And uh, it was all about scapegoating. Yeah. Dr. Dr. Isaac, I I want to ask you this. You're a doctor, accomplished dentist. Uh, How is it that Germany was had many doctors, had many lawyers. It was known for culture, known for education. And we always say that education is the key, you know, to preventing, uh, you know, another horrendous chapter in history. How do you reconcile education with what the Germans perpetrated against the Jews and so many others? Uh, That's a difficult question to answer and an easy one to answer. From way back, there's always been an undercurrent of, uh, particularly against Jews, of anti-Semitism. And the propaganda that uh, Hitler and his cohorts managed to promulgate on everybody was incredible. Uh, And it 
manage to, once you give permission, when it comes from up high, like it did from Hitler, to hate the Jews, all of a sudden everybody found a reason why, yeah. I mean, you also have to equate this with the mood that was going on in Germany. Uh, they had just gone through a depression, they had just gone through the hyperinflation after the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, Things were so bad in Germany, and they needed a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. And Hitler and his henchmen, uh, Goebbels in particular, uh, and, he, and he had many other professors and doctors who all joined in the fray and said, yeah, this is why we have these problems. It's the Jews' fault, or it's the Roma, the Gypsies' fault, or it's the Communists' fault. Uh, there were many African Germans uh, who were part of the colonies. All of a sudden, they were ostracized, and they were, while they had been full citizens of Germany, they too were falling under the hammer. And it's... It's hard to imagine, but once you give people permission to voice their prejudices, it comes out and flourishes like uh, <laughs> it's almost impossible. Yeah. yeah. You know, let me say this. This is Reverend Bernard. And, and I think we must understand as a society that the oppressed uh, or those who are being targeted cannot fight this fight uh, alone. It, it, it takes collective effort. I think about how... Uh, Rabbi Abraham Heschel joined hands, uh, linked arms with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, uh, and marched for civil rights, uh, understanding the importance of the impact that it has on all of us in society. Um, he, he said, I prayed with my feet. That was marching. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. You know, it's in the notes. Thank you so much for adding that. Yeah. He, he was asked, aren't you worried about marching in this civil rights movement? And uh, that was his answer. You know, I, I think of the, we received calls at the Board of Rabbis from members of the Asian community, uh, Pacific Islander community. They're saying, um, we need help. We need people to stand with us. And we said, of course you do. And we understand that very well. And we're walking with them this uh, today. Uh, there'll be a walk uh, fully square to Chinatown and there's been so many other uh, protests. But protests together with Jews and non-Jews and people of all different faiths, because I think the Holocaust has reminded us that uh, if we're going to if we're going to combat this in a, an effective fashion, we got to combat it together. And uh, if it is them against us, we need to make sure that we're the us and the us does not just include one group. So uh, I think that's a lasting lesson. Uh, but, but it's a shame that we're here. We're still talking about human hatred. After all we've been through, you would think that after the Holocaust, we would have learned the sickness uh, of this disease. And yet uh, we haven't absolutely. found the vaccine. Right. I, I, I think it's important uh, that uh, you do what you do, having conversations like this, creating books, the museum. Because we all know that over time, history becomes legend, legend becomes myth, and sooner or later, myth becomes irrelevant or dismissed by the society. So we have to remember. We have to keep these mm -hmm. things fresh. Uh, we have to rehearse this in the ears of our children and our children's children. And it's so powerful what the museum does, especially for school kids that, uh, that come to see it. Of all different backgrounds, yeah. Dr. Eisen, I think you wanted to say something. Uh, just, just to emphasize, uh, 
the main one of the main mottos of the museum. It's posted over the one of the entrances to the exhibit is Zachor, mm-hmm. remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's exactly what you're talking about. You know, as, as parents and grandparents, we have to speak to our children about their history and heritage because otherwise they they become indifferent. They they say, okay, well, what's in it for me? But one of my favorite quotes is from Steinbeck. In Grapes of Wrath, he writes, how will our children know who they are mm-hmm. if they don't know where they came from? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's vitally important yeah. to impart to our children and to educate children and everybody about our history. That will help, hopefully, avoid the kind of things that did Germany in Nazi Germany. And can, yeah. can I leave you with a story? And, and you can react to it, of course. I was at the dedication of the Holocaust Museum in Washington years ago. Congressman Jack Kemp, who was then a, a congressman from Buffalo, uh, attended. And he took a rock out of his pocket. And he said, you see this rock? See this stone? This was given to me by a family that escaped uh, the Holocaust. They, they, they were able to get away, but they witnessed Kristallnacht. Uh, which your, your family, David, also uh, witnessed. Yeah. And I just want you to keep this in your possession to remember those who were forgotten by so many others. And Kem said he's always carried that stone with him. And, and I think that's what we all need to do, is, is to carry the memory uh, and to make sure that uh, no more stones uh, are, are thrown at anybody. Um, but it's it's a genuine it, it's it's a moral responsibility. Talk about education. You need a moral education. It's not just about having a degree that makes you proficient in some area. Uh, there's got to be a moral component. You're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, and I think that that's what that, that's what we strive for. Um, we impart the stories, we uh, provide the information and so on, but it's whatever we can do to bring children and adults alike to that point where, um, where they do take on that responsibility. Yeah. You know, if I may say this as Reverend Renard, uh, I think the history, the stories, the museums memorialize in every way possible is so important because without the context and the history, we suffer as a society from a deficiency of empathy. And um, that is a problem in our society right now. Yeah. Very well said. As as we conclude, Reverend Bernard, I want to say thank you to you. Uh, Because, you know, we Jews, we we talk about the Holocaust quite a bit uh, because we want to make sure it's a lesson that is, is not forgotten. But when we have the Christian voice with us, as you mentioned before, Heschel and King, but when you, we have someone like yourself who says, I want the story told. I want to hear as a Christian. I want other Christians to hear it. It makes it so much more powerful. Um, and I think of the many Christians who go to the Museum of Jewish Heritage, right? It's not just Jews who are walking in, not just Jews going into the Holocaust Museum in Washington. Uh, I think it's become a universal message uh, for people uh, who never again want to see such a horror perpetrated against anyone. Absolutely. Thank you so much, both of you, for being on our program. And I hope it's not the last time because I've got more questions that the rabbi won't let me ask. Because he's, he's watching the clock. Yeah, you know, I, don't, yeah. I don't watch thank the you. clock. But thank by you the way, before us. you go, Dr. Isaac, Dr. Gerson, I want to say thank you to you 
for sharing your daughter with us at the New York Board of Rabbis, Rabbi Diana Gerson, who does such great work, uh, very involved in uh, the area of family violence and child abuse and uh, has become a, a, a very, very important figure in that arena. Uh, so that another story that we need to talk about. We can't whisper about it. Uh, can't close our eyes to it. We've got to talk about it. So thank you. Well, yeah. And thank yeah. you very yeah. much for very, that. Very and, well. and thank you both again. All right. God bless you. All right. The name Thanks. of the book is Missing Pieces, and uh, it's a family story retold. And uh, you know what? You, there's a They have a website, which I'll mention I'm trying to mention it later on. Uh, but there's yeah, a, When we come back from yeah, the break, we, yeah, can, we can do that. You're listening to The Rev and the Rabbi right here on 77 WABC. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. You know, Reverend, as I, I listened to my, I thought I was talking to my own parents, my own family members, uh, and there were very few of them. But we grew up in homes that were different than our friends, uh, you know, especially around the holidays when you see families gather and we'd have three or four people at the table. Uh, and my folks didn't want to talk about the past very much because they didn't want to impose their sadness on me. Uh, but as I, you know, grew older, I learned more and more. And to me, they were they were really heroic. Being able to somehow survive that pain and mm. might find meaning in life again. Um, that to me was, you know, a, a very very. Uh, inspiring story in my life that, you know, you yeah. you have to learn sometimes to begin again. Well, you know, I, I, I again, you know, I subscribe to, to a Judeo-Christian faith, and I really love and appreciate those Jewish roots of Christianity and the traditions that were passed on even to us in terms of memorializing these beliefs, these values, and passing it on from generation to generation. You know, I think that is so, so important. And, you know, uh, Dr. Gerson kept, uh, once I mentioned it, she kept emphasizing the artifacts. The artifacts tell the story, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's a red shoe or, or some other artifact, you know, and it, it, it allows an opportunity to unpack uh, what went on at, at, at that time. And think how quick, so that's, that's powerful. Yeah, think how quick we are sometimes to throw away some of our own personal artifacts. You know uh, yeah. that we, you know, this idea of discarding things, getting rid of the the clutter, and sometimes in that clutter, there's some very precious articles uh, that need to be preserved. Well, just don't tell my wife that she tends to be a hoarder. <laughs> yeah. so I, you know. Oh, did I say this on? National no, Radio? no, it's just I'm between sorry. us. It's our I, secret. I, I, I will never reveal it. She wants to hold on to everything. Well, uh, but it's true. I mean, you know, these are memories that 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 stay with us for so long. We look back at photos um, that we have in our family that go back to the 1960s when my wife and I were kids, yeah. and you know, they had. You remember the old Polaroid camera? Sure. That, it will come out, and yeah. you have to wait about three minutes <laughs> for it to develop, and you peel it away. You know, this generation knows digital, but uh, so many things. And, and before that, of course. 
But, you know. Yeah, preserving the history is so important. I remember when I uh, became a rabbi, I met an older rabbi. Now then I became the older rabbi, but he was the older person then, Rabbi Harry Halpern. And he said to me, Joe, keep this in mind. When a person loses a wallet, he or she is ready to forego many things, the credit cards, the money, but there is something you want desperately returned, the pictures. Because mm-hmm. those pictures mm-hmm. recall special moments with special people. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, uh, we uh, we need to think carefully before we throw things away. Yeah. All right. And, and this is a disposable society. Yeah. You know, everything, fast food, you, you eat it, throw it away, whatever. But listen, Rabbi, before we close, we've we got to talk about Kristallnacht because it was mentioned by you. It was mentioned by Dr. Gerson, but never explained really what it is. Um, what is Kristallnacht? Yeah, you know, the night of broken glass. The night of broken glass was the time when the Germans decided what better way to destroy the Jews than to destroy Jewish life, Jewish culture, Jewish religion. And synagogues, you know, uh, were uh, desecrated. There were rocks thrown from synagogues, and um, the glass was shattered. And, you know, also Jewish businesses were destroyed. But what made this so, so painful, even more so, was that the government participated in it. This is not where you have, for example, a, you know, a riot and the police are coming in to stop it. They didn't stop it. They encouraged it. They were part of it. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons what survivors always valued democracy, always valued freedom, because they know what was taken from them. And therefore, right. they, they felt they were blessed by what was given to them when they were in this country and other places around the world where they were treated uh, as equals. Great. You know, that, that's powerful yeah. because here in America, we can be so spoiled that we take our freedoms for granted. Mm-hmm. We take our way of life for granted. Uh, and, and that's a problem. Uh, you know, I look, I, I say this. If you have a complaint about America, go go live in Russia. Go live someplace else for a while. See yeah. how you like it. And and then criticize uh, America. And we've got our issues. We've got a lot that we have to work through and work on. But uh, I wouldn't yeah. think of another place I'd like to work on it and through it than here. I don't see a lot of people, you know, the exodus. Uh, you know, you, you see an exodus maybe in New York to other places, but I don't see people leaving America to go to Russia, to go yeah. to China, <laughs> to go to Cuba. I see it the other way around. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, there comes a moment you have to say, thank you. Thank you, America, for well, all that you mean and all that you do. And, you know, we can always be better. Uh, but right now, let's be thankful for the good that's in our lives. In, right. in, in the words of a song that I love so much by an incredible Jewish singer named Neil Diamond, they come to America. They come to America. He was one of they my favorites. He still is one of really? my favorites. Oh, I used to go to his concerts. I went to many Neil Diamond concerts. One of my favorites. Of course, I was six years old at the time, but, you know. Of you know, course yeah. you were. You know, they're bringing him back to Broadway, right? They're, yeah. they're doing a Broadway yeah. uh, musical Great along talent. his life and music. Great yeah. music. All right. Reverend, yeah. once again, thank you. Today was a, a very powerful program, and uh, we, we became witnesses, too, in listening to Dr. Doctors Isaac and Gerson telling the story and informing us of our responsibility. Absolutely. And it's always a pleasure doing it with you, Rabbi. You uh, continue to to bless me in our relationship and just 
the opportunity to have civil discourse about these uh, very complex and controversial issues. Well, I always say you're the brother I, you're the brother I never had. You never knew that I was your brother, but uh, I, I, I <laughs> just what you need that. another yeah. brother. <laughs> no, but it, it, it's 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 more than just a friendship. It's it's a familial relationship, and I'm very proud to be part of it. Thank yeah. you. All right. All right. Next Until week. next time. Uh, more of the Reverend the Rabbi right here on 77 WABC. God bless.